This week's podcast partner is Nuffield Australia. Applications for the 2025 program close on Friday the 31st of May. It's only a couple of weeks away. If you're looking to select a research topic that will be of use to you, your business, community and industry, and join a global alumni of more than 2,000 people while travelling the world to research that topic, apply for a Nuffield scholarship. Find out more at nuffield.com.au. But I think the longest uh, lesson for me, and, and finally the reason I've come home, is that I think just working on the ground there, as much as I love working with farmers anywhere, that simple intervention was not going to be sufficient. What we need is structural change. I think the average farmer in Australia would agree that farmers are not appropriately rewarded for the essential service that they provide. G'day and welcome to episode 51 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleith, and today I'm very excited to have Dr. Robin Alders. As always, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor who really helped me make it possible to bring these conversations to life. LAWD are the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. You can find out more at www.lawd.com.au. Among her accolades, she's the first female vet scientist to be made an officer of the Order of Australia. Dr. Alders is most recognised for her work on food security through improving the poultry health in developing countries. With a career spanning more than 30 years, her work has assisted smallholder farmers, particularly women, to provide adequate nutrition and financial support to their families. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Thanks so much, Ollie. I'm really happy to be joining you. I'll tell you, as I was reading through your list of accolades and accomplishments, it's immense. But coming back, things started for you closer to home in the Southern Tablelands there. And was a career as a vet always on the cards or what kind of led you down that path? Oh, well, I guess at age four, I wanted to be a drover. But uh, then uh, when I was 12, my horse got sick. We called the vet, the vet performed miracles. And after that, uh, I wanted to be a veterinarian and and I had my sight set on being a, an equine vet but then when I went to university and I, I met up with sort of people coming from many different places around the world people who had worked internationally my focus changed a little bit from that sort of very narrow focus on on uh, the, the horse the health of horses to a, a broader sense of what is health a healthy world and a a world where everybody has a chance to, to, to get the food they need and, uh, and uh, live the life they'd wish. And so I think one thing that's special around working with agriculture is we look at it, it's the one constant, no matter who you are, where in the world, you rely on agriculture every day to be part of your life. But so I suppose putting, going from just having it as a nice idea to then moving in and actually walking the walk, what led you down the path of actually then going and undertaking work at, at a global level? Uh, uh, well, I don't know how to tell someone your age um, this story, but when I graduated, I, I managed to have uh, a, a, a fabulous time at university. So I did my vet degree. I, I did a one-year research um, diploma. I did a a diploma of veterinary clinical studies, then I did a PhD, and it was all free. So at the end of 10 years at a tertiary institution, 
I could choose what I wanted to do. And, and I had that luxury because I had no debts that I could just go and work where I wanted to work. And I applied to universities around the world and um, uh, particularly to universities that had English as their language of instruction. And from the responses I got, I chose to go to Zambia. So I went off to Zambia, worked on a local contract. I, I didn't know anything about the volunteer program in those days. That would be a much easier option, I, I hasten to add. But it was great. I had a really excellent uh, three years in Zambia. I learned a lot. The, the people were very welcoming. Um, and that sort of, it was that introduction to seeing a slightly different world. So for somebody who, who grew up on a, a beef and prime lamb farm, I've ended up working with village chickens because they're the most commonly owned livestock around the world. And um, even your poorest farmers will frequently have a few scavenging uh, village chickens. And they're a very important part of their livelihood strategy. And particularly for women, they're often the only livestock that women have some control over. So yes, not, a, not, not, not what I was planning at the age of 12, and I'm still not sure I'm going to end up. Yeah, lovely. It's, it's incredible. And so I suppose, was it very obvious early on, as soon as you got over there to Zambia, that chickens was the avenue of choice? Or was that, uh, I suppose, a conscious decision that you thought you could go down that, to have an impact? Uh, absolutely. I was primed to see chickens. And that was because work that had been done by the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research in collaboration with the University of Queensland had developed a vaccine against Newcastle disease. And this disease, the hot strains, will kill 100% of, of susceptible chickens. And the University of Queensland, with support from ACR, had developed a vaccine that didn't need to be kept cold. So it meant that if you can get the vaccine out there, you can vaccinate these birds and stop these sort of annual, annual die-offs. So I was primed. But I have to say, it, um, in terms of the veterinary profession internationally, village chickens uh, have been off the radar. Most of the work was looking at cattle, occasionally at small ruminants. And, and it may be that one of the reasons why village chickens weren't seen was that they didn't have thermotolerant vaccine at that time. And, it was pointless investing in husbandry or production if, if those birds were then going to die of Newcastle disease. So maybe it was all serendipity and great timing that it all came together. Yeah, wow. And have you got a, a favourite place in terms of, oh, I suppose, a fond memory of where your work has gone from just being localised to then, yeah, really having a profound a impact? Place. Well, I guess my favourite place right now is my own farm here in Australia. It's always nice to come home. And of the places, I, I've been privileged to work in many different places and uh, everywhere. People have been fabulous, very generous with their time and their knowledge. I, I guess in terms of places that made a major impact was Mozambique. I first arrived there in 1993. Some of you won't have been born then. But anyway, that was... Uh, that was uh, Five, five months after the, the, the peace treaty or peace agreement had been signed at the end of the Civil War. So it was the poorest country in the world, according to the United Nations Development Program Human Development Index, ranked right on the bottom. It was, if people on the eastern seaboard will remember here the 93, 94 drought, they had the same thing. So coming out of Civil War, huge drought. And that was an amazing experience. And uh, confronting as well because unlike Zambia, which had been a British colony, so I sort of had a feel for how things worked and, and uh, English was the official language. 
in Mozambique, they'd been colonized by the Portuguese. So the official language was Portuguese. The, the legal way and the general framework, the way you do things was a little bit different. So uh, yes, people had to have a lot of patience. And uh, even when I finally managed to get by in Portuguese, you'd get out to the villages and many of them couldn't speak Portuguese anyway. There are 16 major dialects. So I almost always had to work uh, through a translator, which can lead to any number of fascinating experiences. Yeah, and so I was going to, going to ask on that, when you're working within these communities, how, how, how much work goes into actually, I suppose, building up the rapport with the local community, but then actually making them self-sustaining as well? Like at what stage did you guys step away after your involvement with them? Well, that, that term, that term uh, in terms of developing a rapport, I, I'm going to ask you a question first. Ollie, as a farmer, do you think the government is there to help you? How does it feel? you feel like the government's there to help you? I'd say in Australia, look, the majority of the time you'd say the relationship with the government is probably not um, as apparent. But then as soon as tough times come around, let's say the drought a couple of years ago, absolutely, they're, they're front and centre there to help. Okay, well, um, it, it may be that I'm a little bit older and, uh, and so can just uh, speak from, you know, talking with folk in our area. And I, I have to say there are not a lot of farmers in my area anyway that I talk to that feel like the Australian government is always there to help them. As you say, they turn up when it's an absolute crisis. But, but in between, in terms of supporting farmers and what we know is that um, if we look at OECD data, uh, Australian government to support to agricultural research and development is amongst the lowest. So we don't get a lot of help. Farmers are doers. You get on and you do it and you don't complain. That lets our government off the hook. And there are sometimes changes to regulation. So I, I think, um, uh, and the other thing was growing up outside a very small community. You understand that when new people come in, it takes a while for people to feel them out and to know. So. If you take those two things about people being uncertain as to why authority is there, are they there to help you or not? Um, these people are foreigners or these people are outside my community. I don't know who they are. And then you put on top of that, you've been colonized and the average white person over the last few hundred years hasn't necessarily been there to help you. Mm. So I think it's really important to understand that no, it people would just keep watching you because historically speaking, and, and even some of the best intention development projects haven't necessarily been designed in collaboration with the locals. So they don't always work. They might work for two years, but then as soon as all the external funding goes away, things tend to, to run down. And the blame is then put on the recipients rather than having a design that didn't really match people's circumstances. So I think you just have to get used to the fact that people are always watching you. They're trying to figure out why you're there, what's your angle, what's in it for you. And the, the great thing with the, the Newcastle disease work that we did is that when the vaccine is administered correctly, you get an immediate impact because birds that would usually die at particular times during the year no longer die. So all of a sudden, people have had an experience where outside work has made a visible difference to them. 
And, uh, and you have to remember that in some of these countries, even human um, vaccination campaigns haven't always gone well. So, so people are a bit uncertain. So yes, just take time, understand that you're, you're being watched. And if you're a farmer, you will understand exactly where they're up to because the scale may be different, but the problems you face of weather, of uh, uh, government regulations that don't necessarily fit your circumstances, but you still got to pay some tax or something, uh, you know, there are always, so I, I think having a background growing up on a farm in Australia was in fact the most important um, qualification that I had for this work. Forget everything else. It was just having an insight into what it's like to try and get by as a farmer. Yeah, wow. And in terms of, I suppose, for like yourself when you're over there, it's a world away from where we are here in Australia, but did you have mentors on the ground over there? back here in Australia, how did, how did people help you out when you didn't know the decision yes. or you needed a shoulder to lean on? Yes, very, very important. Uh, here in Australia, I had two fabulous uh, mentors, one of whom is still alive. So John Copland, who was the animal health uh, coordinator with, with ACR, uh, really such a lovely person, took great care. I, I used to think that I got special attention from John, maybe because I was a young, unmarried female out in the field. And then with time, when I met people that had had his support, different projects around the world, I understood that he took great care of everybody. He really worried about people and he, uh, he ensured that they were safe and well looked after and doing the right thing. My other mentor was Peter Spradborough, who was an, an eminent veterinary virologist who said that very late in life, he saw the light. He'd spent most of his career working on bovine vaccines but then um, in the last few years worked with village chickens. And he said that was the most fulfilling work. So Peter was a fabulous uh, mentor and it really is about getting that data, making sure that what you're proposing makes sense on the ground for, for people. Uh, and then on the ground uh, in Mozambique, I had, uh, there was an Australian uh, doctor, Julie Cliff. She's currently back in Australia right now, but. She has taken care of many floundering Australians uh, in Mozambique over the years, a, a fabulous woman. And then Rosa Costa, who was the, the director of the Institute where I was based in Mozambique, was also in her very gentle and diplomatic way, uh, helped me to, to, uh, to get by a, a, as best as possible. And I'm pleased to say that Rosa um, has retired now from the government and she's now the director of the Kaima Foundation. That's a little, NGO um, that I work with that, that has a, an, an office in Mozambique as well. So that's been a great story. Yeah, fantastic. And so were you, were you living over there permanently or was it part of, part of the year researching in Australia and then going and applying it? No, no. I was on the ground there. And uh, uh, yes, uh, when I first went, um, there was no mobile phone, there was no internet, so communication with Australia in the early days was via aerogram. Some of you won't know what an aerogram is, but it was a piece of, like an A4 piece of paper that you could fold up. So I'm just, you fold that way and you lick the edges and that was your, your letter. And that was how we kept in contact. I'd have one phone call a year while I was in Zambia. I didn't have a phone at all. Um, wow. uh, that led to a few confusions when there was a, an attempted coup in Zambia. I went down to make a call 
I didn't want to worry my parents, so I phoned my brother and sister-in-law and I said, listen, I'm just calling to let you know I'm okay. Don't worry, mum and dad. And so what happened was that friends in Australia started calling mum and dad, but they didn't know I was fine. But anyway, <laughs> that was a very different time. Um, and then in Mozambique, uh, you had faxes, so that became a little quicker. But I have to say, the great thing, I still prefer faxes to emails because you could always say the electricity was down and you didn't get the message. The problem with emails is that once you're on, they're still waiting for you. You can't get away from headquarters. So, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how much, like when you think of that 27 odd years ago, but just how advanced communication has become since then. Rapid. It, it, the transformation and uh, for me, in the, when I'd go out to the villages in the early days and, and people would, particularly if you were going to work with women, in the sort of people, the women would come in and sit down and then on the, you know, often there was a tree with branches and the women would hang these round circles um, uh, on the tree and they were the things that they put on their head when they're carrying the, uh, the buckets of water that they, they carry on their head or whatever else they need to transport. But these days, what gets hung on the tree are the mobile phones. So for many years, while I worked in Mozambique, I had better coverage in Mozambique and I'd come back to the farm in Australia with zero mobile phone coverage. <laughs> it's probably not far off still, is it? Or slowly uh, improving? No, here. I think you're right. It is getting better, but it's very expensive here. Yeah. This week's podcast sponsor are our friends over at Boarding Schools Expo. Amanda and her team for more than 20 years have been bringing boarding schools closer to the places that people call home. Over 15,000 children have met their future boarding school at one of their events. At the end of June, they're hosting an event in Wagga. So if you're keen or know someone who might, head to their website, boardingexpo.com.au to find out more. Incredible. Yeah. And when it, when it came to, I suppose, being a female in these communities, and I hope this isn't coming from a naive perspective, but how did you go when it was working with, I suppose, because the chickens were more under the care of the females in it, how, how was the dynamics between the men and the other village people and yourself? Well, um, yes, yeah, so I was, I was lucky. Uh, once again, I guess I, I should have mentioned it. I guess another person who played a great role was a, a social anthropologist who, who helped me to reflect on things a, a little bit and how you work with people. But when you went into a new community, you always worked through the local structures. So I didn't go straight and set up meetings with women. I, you go in and you set up meetings with the local leaders. You ask them how, how they would recommend. And one thing that we learned very early on is that while we say that village chickens are women's business, if you're working with a very poor household and the only livestock they have are chickens, then the men are also interested as well. So you've just got to go through and, you know, ask those questions about who's involved, who wants to be involved. And, uh, and as I say, initially, everyone is a bit uncertain as to why we're here. And in the early days in Mozambique, they'd say, you want to vaccinate what? You want to vaccinate our chickens? They say, our children aren't vaccinated. What are you doing? You know, so, you know, you've just got to work um, slowly. Yeah, interesting. And, and so I suppose going on from that, is there a lesson that came out of your time over there that you, you had to learn the hard way? 
Oh, how many? I, I would think I learned a lot, but I, I think the longest uh, lesson for me and, and finally the reason I've come home is that I think just working on the ground there, as much as I love working with farmers anywhere, that simple intervention was not going to be sufficient. What we need is structural change. I think the average farmer in Australia would agree that farmers are not appropriately rewarded for the essential service that they provide. So here in Australia, while farm gate prices might look all right at the moment, that's because they've been so bad. And, and many farms still carry levels of debt. They do it because they love it, not because they've been making great money. So I think what we need is, is to reinvent the way we do things. Uh, for me, seeing food and those who produce food, those who distribute food as essential members of society and actually getting the medical, the human medical profession to work with agriculture so that agriculture and fresh nutritious food is seen as an essential element of preventive medicine for people, that would elevate the way we work. It would in, have a closer alignment so that what is produced by farmers is more likely to get to people in a good state because what's happening around the world, farmers are generally working to produce a good product, but often it goes into some place, it gets reformulated, repackaged, divided up into its component nutrients, reformulated, and a lot of the food that people are eating these days is not healthy. So we, we've got to figure out a way um, for farmers to be rewarded so that they can look after their family and their land or their water, if depending on where they find themselves, and that, uh, that, that contribution um, to human well-being and that recognition by consumers that farmers, um, the work they do is essential and should be rewarded uh, appropriately. They want us to produce great food, but they want cheap food and they want us to produce great food and they want us to look after the environment. But the bottom line is to do all of that, you've got to have all the bottom line met. So I think um, if there is a silver lining to COVID-19, it is reminding people that without food, you don't stand a chance. So this is a great opportunity for you and your generation to really use your way to connect with people and to raise the profile of what you do and why it's so important. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's one of those ones, which I think that the, the COVID pandemic has been really interesting because it comes back to ultimately the food system and it's come from the reports that it came from wildlife but it's more so it's how we're interacting with nature and ultimately farmers doing that every day but there there's something underlying in this which i don't think the message has quite got through yet around covid are we still thinking very much about how do we grow how do we grow in terms of economics but i still think there's a fundamental piece where we haven't actually reflected on how did we get to this point and sit down and hit the drawing board Yes, you, you're quite right. And as for COVID-19, we're still not completely sure. There is no immediate link to, to wildlife. What we know is that it seems very happy in people and it's very easily transmissible between people. But that actual missing link to wildlife has not been identified. And that also asks the question, why do people go to wet markets and why do people continue to eat wildlife? And there are a couple of very important um, reasons there. Firstly, if you don't have a refrigerator, 
you absolutely want to know that what you're getting was healthy. So I have to say, for all of my time in Mozambique, I never once bought a frozen chicken. We only ever bought live chickens because you could see that bird was healthy. Whereas if you got frozen, you don't know if it had thawed, frozen thawed, frozen thawed, you didn't know what the history was. So seeing those live healthy birds was actually a sensible choice. And the other difficulty in places like China in a, a few regions in, in, uh, in Asia, you've had problems with food contamination. So you've had chickens that were, you know, um, being uh, injected with hormones that was leading to complications, particularly for the men that were getting their higher levels of estrogen. And, uh, and then you've had the melanin problem, the contamination of milk. So people are not sure that industrially produced food was safe, whereas they feel that wildlife, uh, it's going to be tasty and, uh, and it may have some cultural significance. But there's an element of people just not being completely sure about their own industrial food system. So it is, it's very complex how we got to this point and we don't know all the answers, as you say. Yeah, it's interesting. And so I suppose during your time working uh, over there, when did the epiphany come that you're doing all this work and you're helping some of the, I suppose, most underprivileged people in within their communities? But when did the, the light bulb moment come that maybe Australia doesn't have everything it's made out to be and that you thought you could, uh, yeah, spend your, your efforts back home here? Well, I, I, the reason to come home was, was multiple, but as we've been discussing, we have a problem with our food system and it's regulations that allow those problems to continue. And so what I felt was that if you want to engage in these areas, you have to be somewhere where you can vote. When I'm working internationally, I'm there as a guest. It's not my country and so I can't engage in that political debate. Coming home to Australia, where I am able to vote, um, that enables me to engage in that discussion. And also, I was aware that when I would talk to people, and particularly people from Commonwealth countries, they know Australia so well. Children in the back of beyond in Zambia would know things about Australia, and most Australians wouldn't have a clue where Zambia was. But what they think is that we are a great and a strong agricultural country. And it's true, we produce good food and we've produced a lot of great food and done some fabulous agricultural research. But we also know that in 200 years, it's taken its toll. We've lost 50% of our soil organic carbon uh, since my convict ancestors washed up on the shore. We know we've got water security problems and we're aware that uh, in some cases, the, the newer varieties both of, of uh, plants and of animals, the changed genetics, hasn't always led to an improvement in nutritional uh, composition. So we're dealing with a range of issues there and with um, dealing with this rapid change in, in our climate and changing weather patterns that we can no longer forecast. So for multiple reasons, it seemed like the right thing to come home. But given that I'd been away for so long, it seemed rather bold for me just to lob back and say, hey, I think you've got a problem. So I was very fortunate that my family still farms uh, here. So I was able, with their help, to get a farm and to learn how absolutely difficult it is and how many more forms and documents you have to fill in than you're used to 
before I left. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's still a, a learning. I, I'm still learning and trying to understand. And at the moment here um, in New South Wales, I, I engage through uh, New South Wales Farmers Association and with our local land care group to try and uh, get a feel for what's going on. And so I suppose last year we really saw the rise of regenerative agriculture. Have you looked to, you'd, you'd mentioned there around um, the loss of carbon in our soils, have you gone down a path of regenerative farming or what, what kind of approach and what kind of livestock are you running? I'd have to say I'm in transition, <laughs> so trying to get there, but it's not, it's not a, a swift process. And this is where I think um, if the governments, both federal and state, really want to help, and if the, the Federal Minister for Energy has soil organic carbon as one of his indicators, they really need to engage with the farming community to see how you can make that transition, because it's not straightforward. Um, every place is a little, little different. But I must say that I have one of the original um, Alan Savory books that I bought in Zimbabwe many years ago. So I've sort of been thinking about this for a number of years and it's fabulous to come back and now to see those who have been um, learning and practicing for 10 to 20 years. They, these are the people that really we, we owe a great debt to because they, they sh show us that it can be worth the pain as so long as you're not carrying debt. So we've got to find a way for those that are carrying it to, to make changes incrementally, um, to make those, uh, those changes, both in, in terms of plant production and, uh, and uh, livestock production. I think that's, it's very exciting, and I think Australia um, uh, will, will be able to uh, reclaim our mantle as a, as a great agricultural country and I think those links also with with Africa because the climate and the geography is so similar okay. um, that there's yeah lo lots of things that we can do together and, and the most important thing is not just sharing the successes but sharing the failures you have to you know it's good to know what what doesn't work under your conditions yeah now my dad gave me some advice and it was more related to careers but he said instead of just looking for the the job that you want work out what you don't want to do and it's the exact same you look at that and apply it to any kind of any aspect whether it's farming work out what doesn't work and you'll start to move yourself you'll make progress and move closer towards where you want to be yes and and at your age you you could have five incarnations you may end up doing a whole range of different things seven i think is what we're aiming for <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> enjoy <laughs> It's <laughs> so also suppose off that flipping it back. If you had your time again, you're back in university and um, the yeah, you're in university today and you've got a plethora of opportunities. Would you take a similar path, or you think you'd go a different way? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, and and the, the the situation is that it that things are different. As I mentioned, when I made my choices. Uh, getting an education was a right, not a privilege. So I knew if I got the grades, I would be able to go to university. And uh, in those days, um, the vet course in New South Wales was at the University of Sydney and it was a Bachelor of Veterinary Science. So we had a five year course and at the end of that, um, you, could, you were a qualified professional and it was a very broad based training. That, that Bachelor of Veterinary Science at Sydney doesn't exist anymore. It's now a postgraduate degree, so you have to do two years undergrad to do a four-year DVM 
And the focus, I'd, from my perspective anyway, is a little more on companion animals than it mm -hmm. used to be. So given where my interests are right now, I probably wouldn't choose to be a vet. I would probably choose to go agriculture, maybe animal science. But that's, you know, that's taken me 60 years to understand that. You've got you to have a go, do what seems right at the time. So, Absolutely. Um, in terms of what you think for yourself, and so I suppose this is coming back to a few more of the, the mentoring specific questions, but through your, your work, what's been the most underrated value you believe that has put you in good stead? Um, the value, I, I think, is my belief that farmers always have a reason for what they do. Because what tends to happen um, in international development or possibly in some of our government agencies, you have people who are overseeing agricultural programs with no farming background. Yeah. Um, and, and they say, why do farmers do that? It makes no sense. But if you've been a farmer, you understand that you're juggling multiple issues. And so the, the, when, when you don't understand why a farmer does what they do, it means you don't understand all the issues that they're dealing with. So I, I think the most important thing for me was that fundamental belief that farmers are rational and they always have a reason why they do what they do. That's good. In terms of implementing your work and, and seeing change, how would you describe your personal leadership style and what was it that you thought assisted you to, to make those changes work? Um, I guess for me, the, the main thing is just to get on and to do things um, rather than sort of delegating. I think it's much easier to do work if you yourself have some feel for, for what's involved. And then it's not so much a question of, of leadership, but of doing together and then um, delegating for when people um, are ready to go on. But, but uh, I guess in terms of international work and possibly even here, uh, monitoring and evaluation and once again being able to say what doesn't work. And this is a real challenge because no matter where you work in the world, Good news rises, nobody wants to share the bad news. So to create a team who's able to share what's not working is really important. And, and at a farmer level, because it's their livelihood you're playing with, it's not just a report. And, and if something's not working, you've, you've got to say that. And uh, I, I think more broadly, it'd be lovely if that was more universal. Uh, but uh, yeah. It, but it is creating that space where people can share what's not working. It's powerful, isn't it? And it yeah, it takes a lot of, it takes such a, I suppose, a strong environment, but such a trusting environment to be able to give people the confidence that they can say it. But yeah, how, mm -hmm. how much better off would we be if people were saying, here's what I learned, as opposed to just trying to be the right. Yeah, the, this the right is what effort. I did. I ticked all your boxes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so I suppose looking at um, the Australian landscape, particularly for young people looking to get into agriculture, what do you see as some of the challenges that are, are prevalent today? Well, there aren't many of you. This is a major problem. Um, agriculture and, and the, 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 certainly the, the focus that's come through COVID-19 is great, 
There's lots of fabulous TV shows now that largely show the good bits. Um, I, I, I was interested to see that someone had been talking to backpackers who'd been working with, I think, on a mango farm, and there was an image of having bruises on this person's leg as an indication that this was an unsafe industry. And, and I looked at that and I realised that most people just like the glamour and the taste of agriculture, but the actual work and understanding that every now and then you will get a bruise or you'll get a thistle or, you know, that they can be dangerous places and that you need to be qualified, practised and uh, careful on farms. That's why I think the profile needs to be raised because the hours that farmers work, you're still not remunerated as 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 you should be. So I think um, the great opportunity that you have now is this connectivity, and it's using the, this connectivity to be able to beam into uh, houses where we are a very urbanised um, uh, country to have that connection, but then find ways to get people actually after you make that virtual connection, to have that real connection. So people can come out and really understand the hours, the skill, uh, the stress and the strain. All of that is very important. And to have that reflected in the price that farmers are paid at the farm gate. So uh, with technology, it would be very possible um, to have a QR code on everything, every piece of food, every item of food that's sold. With that QR code, it could tell you about an estimate of the nutritional profile. It could also give you an estimate of how much of that price actually went to the farmer. Mm. And I think things like that would be really helpful for people to understand. Absolutely. Um, why, why you really need farmers, but you need to show that. Yeah, and I suppose too, like you start when you... And it might nearly be a theme that's coming out. There's obviously the connection piece, but it's this ability to have differing viewpoints and differing conversations. And even when you look at say, yeah, the price of a mango and you look at where it's going, people are too afraid to actually engage and say, well, why does that person take 5%? What are they, where are they adding value? I think we, we sit back and we can nearly snigger. Um, but we're not actually having those public conversations where yes. not developing. Yeah. Absolutely. Transparency is really important. And so much of what goes on in our, in our food systems and along our value chains is oblique. The public, the consumer, and, and in some cases, the farmer is completely unaware. Um, one of my interests, and, and I have a colleague, Kate Wingert, who works in this area, um, when our uh, livestock go to the abattoir, farmers are paid on the dressed weight of that animal. Um, but in terms of really crucial nutrients like iron, because we pay on dress weight, we have just lost most of that iron because it left with the offal. So where does the offal go? The offal is going to our fat pets. Uh, some of it is going to countries that still appreciate it, like France, China. But on the whole, here in Australia, we are missing out on our opportunity to get really fabulous bioavailable nutrients. and, and um, Levels of deficiency of zinc and uh, iron uh, are quite common in, in certain um, demographic groups in Australia. And their cheapest way to deal with that would probably be once a month have a meal of liver. But we don't. It, it, you know, the the, the uh, meat processors, they don't waste it. 
but it is lost to the human food chain. But nobody talks about that. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. It's, so I suppose a question, this is more, I won't say a light bulb moment, but so we're looking at the productivity of Australian agriculture has increased and you mentioned, but also Howard Shapiro used to work, was the chief ag officer for Mars foods in the U S and he, he mentioned that the nutritional contents in crops, for instance, had not improved as well. And I think you made reference to that. Do you see that as an area of opportunity, which the industry might actually move towards where, we look at those micro macronutrients in the plant and that's how we start yes. to get paid. Absolutely. And it, and it has to be linked to pricing. So the reason that, you know, take a cob of corn, it's got bigger because we're paid largely by weight. But during that process of selecting for that larger cob of corn, we haven't had an equal increase in the density of nutrients. So as the signal for that plant is to grow bigger, what you've got is a relative increase in energy and a relative decrease in key micronutrients because the plant had that thing grow quickly, like me, grow quickly, put on fat, well, grow quickly, it's, it's, it's more energy. And the other thing that happened with, uh, with our hybrid uh, maize or corn was that the ears that covered that cob didn't grow at the same rate. So we now have more of a problem with aflatoxin in, in certain areas. And... That was because the price to farmers was on weight, not on nutrient content. Uh, same, there's a, you know, maybe for wheat, for milk, some nutrients are looked at, but not the whole suite uh, of nutrients that that, uh, that item offers. So that discussion about changing the genetics can only be done if the price signals to farmers rewards them for making that change, for going and looking at slower growing varieties or, or smaller, um, smaller fruit, smaller veggies that just have that fabulous old you know, rush of flavour. Uh, for some of our, our meat chickens, uh, work that's been done in the UK suggests that now there's a lot more energy in that carcass because the, the composition of the carcass has changed. And look at the recommendations for the Heart Foundation in Australia. They tell you to eat white meat, no skin, preferably breast muscle. So what happens to the rest of the chicken that we've put all of those resources in? We've taken scarce arable land in Australia to produce crops, we feed the chickens, and then we're gonna eat the breast muscle? Mm. Maybe, you know, in, there are some com countries in the, uh, companies in the US that are going to slightly slower growing broilers, both for the health of the bird and to improve the composition of the carcass. So it's this discussion about, Farmers do a great job, but they have to be paid. And then the consumers have to agree with that, with that contract. We're going mm. to produce this in this way. This is what it costs and this is what you get. Plus, you're going to get a, a healthier environment and, and farmers with a decreased suicide rate. Wouldn't that be nice? That's it. We need the, the flow of information to actually get to where it's needed so people can make um, informed decisions, I think, is, is key, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, and so, uh, if you're not doing anything next year, I was going to put a plug in. The United Nations is having their food systems summit. And I really think food pricing has to be on the table. And I'd love to see um, the, the next generation of Australian farmers finding a way to organise events ahead of that, work with your international colleagues, and really challenge the way we're doing things. Because clearly, there's got to be a better way.
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'll um I'll look into that and make sure we spread the word around that as well. That'll be interesting. Do you know whereabouts is that being held? Um, I think the lead-up events, uh, and this is another great thing about COVID nineteen. There's a lot of virtual events, so go on, check out um, UN Food Systems Summit, mm-hmm. and there's a site there where you're actually able to propose events. So I think the summit itself is probably going to be in New York. I might be wrong there. Um, but, but the lead-up events, so many of them are virtual now that it gives that opportunity for people who might have had trouble travelling to actually get involved. Fantastic. I'll, I'll go, and, uh, go and have a look at that. And so for, with, at the beginning of 2021, what, what's ahead for you this year? Where, where are the areas of focus? And, yeah, where will you be spending your time for the next year or so uh, for the next uh, little while I'm still planting trees so the absence of labor means that I I, um, I bought a few trees and I haven't got them in so we man- I've managed to get the sheep shorn I'm back to planting trees um, but um, my work um, off farm is around promoting these discussions uh, around how we help farmers to uh, to make that transition. So some of you uh, may be aware that the uh, New South Wales government has some plans to improve water security, um, which includes the proposal to raise the Wangala Dam wall. Uh, we're in discussions here with our local farmers branch and, uh, and land care. We're not necessarily in favour of raising the dam wall because we don't think there's enough rain to actually fill it and make it viable. Uh, but we do think that water security is important and we'd love to have a way to stop the current dam filling up with our topsoil. So we'd love to have uh, government support to be able to improve land management there. Internationally, I continue my my work with food and nutrition security, working with um, organisations mainly in the the UK at the moment through Chatham House and the Royal Vet College. But uh, we're having a, a discussion series uh, looking at food systems, looking at pandemics and how everything really um, connects. So we're, by August, we hope to finish this discussion series in time to have discussion papers out that can then also contribute to the discussion in the wider debate around food systems. Incredible. You're not going to run out of things to do anyway. <laughs> that would be boring, wouldn't it? It would be. Well, thank you. I suppose, yeah, just quickly. Did, was there anything else you wanted to cover? I'll cut this bit out, but. Uh, no, that, that, that's great. Thanks. I, I really, I, I want to thank you for the podcast. And I really think really it's your generation that's so incredibly important. I am very worried at the numbers of family farmers in Australia. I think family farmers have that connection to land. They have the pride in the work that they do and they're willing to make that sacrifice within a financial year if it's going to be good for the farm. Whereas if you work for large commercial enterprises, they can't make those same decisions because their metrics and the way they make decisions are different. So I think for, to, to give the land a chance and to continue the quality of production, we have to find a way to enable family farmers and the subsequent generations to see a future. So I think what you're doing is, is really important. Well, that's it from us for another week. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Dr. Robin Alders. Fascinating, her life of work. And we're, we're at seen her actually return home to 
really have an impact on her own farm and in her local community. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us or to Robin in the contact details below. Look after yourselves and see you next week.